Hello and welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast. We're a church in Newmarket, Ontario, Canada that exists to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. Thanks for joining us today. It's good to be with you here this morning. Let me say one thing about the men's ministry. About two weeks ago, the women met together, and there's about 30 of them in that room, and they all came away from that just so blessed. But I hear there's word going around that the women are starting to think that they're better than the men. So we need a better showing than 30, okay? We have a goal. We're going to beat it, but I just trust we're going to be blessed as we meet together this coming Sunday. Men, is it in your calendar? Is it in your calendar? Give me a nod right now. Give me a nod. Not many of you are nodding. Some of you are like kind of like nodding. Yeah, I'm going to put it in the calendar. Put it in the calendar, okay? We're going to be blessed as we meet together. I want you to turn to your neighbor right now. Ask him this question. How are you doing? Ask him it. Embrace the awkwardness. Ask him. How are you doing? That's good. That's good. I was thinking about that question this week. It's interesting that often when we ask that question, how are you doing, there's sort of this superficial level to it, isn't it? Like the, the answer you expect is probably what you just got. It's kind of become just like a social thing that we do. You ask, how are you doing? And the answer you get is, oh, I'm good. I don't know if you guys have ever asked that question and been kind of caught off guard when someone says, well, you know, things aren't very good. And you weren't expecting that, so you're like, oh, well, um, you know, I don't know if this Tim Hortons drive through is the best place for therapy. And so you just kind of move on. But there is a way to ask that question, isn't there, that, that kind of sh- comes from this place of, of genuine concern and desire for your well-being. In fact, I remember an elder at the previous church that I served at. I, I think he might have, I don't, I don't know if this is a spiritual gift. It's probably not. But I think he had the spiritual gift of asking how you're doing. Because he would come to me in a conversation and, and, you know, there's the hello, you exchange those, and then he'd say, how are you doing? And something about the way that he looked at me or, or just you could sense his, his sort of genuine concern to really know and the time that he had to hear you if you weren't doing well, he would ask me that question and sometimes I feel like I would just break down in tears. And I think what God wants to do for us this morning is come down to that level and ask us this question, looking into our eyes, Inviting us to believe that he has the patience to hear whatever we have to spill out. Inviting us to believe that he has the mercy that that whatever you would say in that moment when he asks how you are doing, whatever you would say in that moment, his mercy is deeper than the deepest evil that your answer could ever contain. And what Paul really is doing here in Philippians chapter 2 verses 9 to 24 is asking us this question. He's sort of doing a spiritual check. He's asking us this question, how are you doing? Like, like no, not, not on the superficial level. How are you really doing? How is your walk with the Lord going? You see, Paul, throughout Philippians, and especially in the second chapter, has, has really concerned himself with what that walk should look like with what you should be doing as a Christian. He's already concerned himself with that. And so you'll remember that the whole header of this section is really verse 27 of chapter 1, when when Paul calls us to let our manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. He essentially says this, you've been saved now, you are a citizen of heaven. And so he says, live out your citizenship. And over the next chapter or so, he really shows us what that means. Like in Chapter 2, verse 4, where he says, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but have the interests of others in mind. Or in verse 12, where he told us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Or or verse 15, where he compelled us to pursue a holiness that, that is out with complaint. Paul has fleshed out what it looks like to walk in a manner of worthy of the gospel, and now he looks us in the eyes, so to speak, and asks us this question, how are you doing? How's your walk? How's your walk going? And it sort of means this morning, as, as God meets us in his word, it, it's this moment of self-reflection, this moment of self-examination. And, and the way that Paul is going to do that for us this morning is by holding up the example of Timothy. As sort of a, a rubric for us to examine our life by, to ask ourselves how we are really doing. And so this morning, as we look at Timothy's life, we see what Paul says in verse 22 
is a, an example of a proven servant. He says, you know Timothy's proven worth. Here's an exemplary servant, and we hold his life up to our life, and, and we ask God, am I really walking in a manner that's worthy of the gospel? Now listen, church, this is a time of, of self-reflection. It's a time for us to look at our life and, and really ask if we are walking in a manner worthy of the gospel. And so I, I would just at this moment ask you to, to ask the Lord to give you great courage, because that's hard sometimes, isn't it? It's hard to look at yourself, and, and at times it's hard when, when, you know, sin is exposed. It's hard when we hold ourselves up to the mirror of God's word and see that something in our life is not sufficient. I'd ask you to have great courage and also to have great faith as you trust that whatever is shown in the mirror of God's word will be met by God's mercy and grace. We need great courage, we need great faith, which means you and I, we need to pray. So would you pray with me right now? Father, we bow before you, and God, we know that you have us here for a reason, God. You want to speak to us. I just am I'm so amazed that you are a God who for all of time, you have loved to speak to your people. And God, that no matter how much we fail to listen at times, no matter how much we don't really care about what you say at times, Lord, you continue to speak to us. And you have us here this morning to speak your word to us. You have us here to, to reflect on our life for a moment, to, to ask how we are doing, how our walk with the Lord is going. If we're walking in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. And Lord, as we stand before your word, as we prepare our hearts to, to go on this journey, Lord, we just pray for your help. Would you give us all the courage we need to dive into our life and to really see with, with a clarity that can only come from your Holy Spirit, to see how we are doing. And God, would you meet us with your grace and your mercy so that we would not be afraid to ask this question of ourselves, that we would not be afraid to, to have sin maybe exposed or our inadequacy, our weakness exposed in this moment. And Lord, would you give us just this overwhelming sense, as you said through your prophet Jeremiah, that, that our iniquities have only withheld good things from us, that our sin has kept good things from us, but you say through through your servant David, that you withhold no good thing from him who walks uprightly. And so we look at our lives and we say, Lord, we want the upright life. We want to live for you and trust that you are our shepherd and our father and you are looking, Lord. You are looking to bless us. And so bless us now, we pray. God, speak to us, we pray. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, we want to think about walking worthily and what that looks like. And I want you to see this, that if we're walking worthy, it means that I'll embrace potential pain for gospel progress. This is what we see in the life of Paul and the life of Timothy. You see this willingness to embrace relational pain so that they can be a part of the progress of other believers. In other words, what Paul really wants to show us this morning, and thereby God wants to show us, is that an indicator of our spiritual vitality, an indicator of our spiritual health, is the willingness with which we are willing to embrace pain for the progress of other people. Notice that in verse 19, this is, why, this is what Paul says, this is why he is sending Timothy. He says there in verse 19, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I may be cheered by news of you. He goes on, For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, but not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. Paul's driving motivation is to see their progress. We saw this in Chapter 1, you, you remember when, when Paul's in prison and, and he's trying to, he's, he's just sort of doing the math. What's better? Is it better to depart and be with Jesus or is it better to be here and to labor for your progress? And he says, I'm going to stay for the progress and the joy of the believers in Philippi. I am going to stay here. 
Last week, we saw how Paul was willing to put himself on the altar of sacrifice, this, this like intense sacrificial language, and he says, I'll do this for your faith. Paul was intensely interested in their progress, but notice here that in verse 19, he's not just interested in his progress. Paul desires to be cheered by the news of how they are growing in Christ. In fact, look down with me at verse 28. We're going to see this next week especially. But look what he says. He says, uh, speaking of Epaphroditus, he says, I'm all the more, I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that I may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. Paul desires to be cheered by news of the progress of the Philippians, but he also has this sort of holy anxiety in and of himself that says, if they're not doing well, I'm going to be disappointed. Now, this is the example, then, that Paul and Timothy set for you and I. That to be a Christian is to make yourself the biggest fan of a group of other believers. That to be a Christian is to sit in the bleachers of other believers' lives and support them through thick and through thin. To long that you might be cheered by news of their gospel progress. Now, now this, I want you to understand, this is what gospel fellowship is all about. If you do not find yourself rooting on the faith and investing yourself in the lives of other people for the sake of the progress of their faith, you do not have gospel fellowship. This is what gospel fellowship is. It's not coffee and tea and cookies in the church basement. It is this integrating your life with other believers so that their highs are your highs and that their lows are your lows. It's this willingness to embrace this emotional, relational pain in order that you might be an instrument used in their sanctification and in their path to glory. And so as Christ followers, you and I, we are to be so invested in the lives of other believers that our emotional well-being rises and falls on their spiritual well-being. And this is the kind of gospel fellowship that, that Paul is calling us into in the letter of Philippians. Now, I want you to understand that the reality is that just because you attend church on a Sunday morning does not mean that you have this kind of gospel fellowship. It is very easy to attend on a Sunday morning and just kind of show up and not be too invested in other people's lives and then to go home. What God's doing here is, is he's really prodding you and I to ask ourselves this question. Are we really in fellowship with other believers. And the way that you know that is, is by looking at Paul's words here, looking at his desire to send Timothy that he might be cheered by news of their progress, and really asking this question, do I have that in anyone else's life? Like, is there anyone in this church that I am rooting to, for them, I'm so intimately aware of what's going on in their life that I'm just constantly cheering for them? And if I feel like they're not doing well, like, I'll wake up in the middle of the night and they're just on my mind. I just, I just love them, like Paul says, with the affection of Christ Jesus. And I want to see them grow. I want to see them thrive in their relationship with the Lord. Are there people in this church who, if, if they're mourning, you're mourning. If they're laughing, you're laughing. If they're encouraged, you are encouraged. This is the fellowship God is calling us into. It, it is a fellowship where we mourn with those who mourn, and we weep with those who weep, and our lives are inextricably tied to the well-being of other believers. See, this is what we're seeing in the letter of Philippians, is that when this, the gospel, when it does this inward work on us, there is this outward work in, in that I look to other believers— so that I might be influential in their life, just as Christ has been influential in my life. I attach my life to other believers' lives, like a train car does to the engine, to say, wherever you go, I'm going. I'm with you through thick and thin. I am committed to your growth in the highs and in the lows. Now, I want you to understand that, that this... This kind of life where, you know, you're willing to embrace this relational 
pain in order to see the progress of others, it can only really come as a product of gospel belief. In other words, you will only invest yourself in others, and we can say this as strongly as this, that you will invest yourself in others when you realize how Christ has committed himself to you in your highest highs and your lowest lows. Consider, Christian, for a moment how Christ attached himself to you. Have you ever thought about this? Like in, in the lowest moment of your low, after faith, where was Jesus? Jesus was with you. He was with you. Like on the darkest of dark days where even your spouse is like, you know, you're a little too grumpy for me. Where is Jesus? Jesus is right there beside you on the lowest of lows. What about your, the highest of highs? What about like the best day that you've ever had? Like, you know those days where you're just tempted to forget even, you're even tempted to forget God's existence. Where is Jesus in that moment? In that moment, Jesus does not depart from those that he loves. He is right beside them. He has attached himself to you so that what Paul says is that he humbled himself by taking on human flesh so that he could be Emmanuel, God with us. He's with us. He's attached himself to us in our humanity so that in our lowest of lows and our highest of highs, we have an advocate. We have a brother who is bringing us to heaven. Jesus is interceding on your behalf right now. He is, he is in heaven in this moment. If your faith is in Jesus Christ and he is rooting for your progress, Every word is for your good. He is interceding on your behalf. He is bringing you to heaven. No matter where you are right now, no matter how you walk into this this church this morning, no matter how far you feel that you are from God, if your faith is in him, you have an intercessor in heaven who it does not matter. He is for you. And now, out of the gospel foundation that Jesus is doing that for me right now, I, I commit to doing that for other people. I want you to see, this this is where the power and motivation to embrace this, this potential pain comes from. It comes from, look at what Paul says in verse 19. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus. This is something that you and I can only have in the Lord. This can only come from a recognition that what you have done for others and embracing potential pain in order to see them progress has already been done in a much more significant way for, in you, for you in Christ. And so if you find yourself at a place right now where relationally you're kind of like holding other believers at arm's length because you just, maybe you don't want them to see into your life. And maybe you also don't want the additional burden of having to see into their life. I want you to ask this question. If if the gospel has really sunk deep to a heart level to affect you with this understanding of what Jesus is doing for you right now. If there is anyone. If there is anyone who who can stand on a firm foundation and say, you know, I don't think I should be involved in your life right now. It is Jesus for you. He has been with you through thick and thin. And it is this understanding that becomes a firm foundation for us to then invest in other people's lives even when it is hard. Even when that means to take on their garbage. Even when that means to be potentially stabbed in the back by them. Even when that means to be hurt by them. Now you see this sort of gospel fellowship, I, I want you to understand that it is completely countercultural. It's supernatural, and it is against everything that we are as a culture. Everything is against you in this. Maybe you're, you know, an unbeliever looking into the church. Maybe, maybe you know, you're visiting this church for the first time, trying to decide if it's for you. Maybe you're even in this church. I want you to understand that everything is against you, pressing deeper into this kind of fellowship. Our culture, you think about it for a moment, like, isn't everything in our culture kind of designed to keep us separate from each other? Think for a moment about the way that houses are built. Aren't houses built so that now you kind of pull into your garage and you don't even have to know your neighbor? In fact, have any, any of you guys you ever pull into the driveway at the same time as your neighbor? 
and you know they have this first 21st century thought where it's like I, I cannot talk to this person so all of a sudden they become like a navy seal they get out of their car they're in a ghillie suit they're hiding in the bush in fact some of us we have we, we have each of us probably have this neighbor don't you where like you just never see them you think like they're going to be the next missing person on that prime crime podcast that you listen to this is the reality of our culture. We just, we don't want to be invested in other people's lives. So that there are probably many here who regularly, the only thing that separates you from your neighbor is like six feet and two walls, but you don't even know them beyond a superficial hello. And that's not a problem. I'm just saying that's, that's the cultural water that we swim in. Think about the way that churches have been designed in these last hundred years. Like, the church has never been like this, but now the church has kind of been designed in many scenarios to be highly programmatic, you can kind of plug into it without having to know anybody or really be fully known. And you can take all the material, you can download it all, but you don't need the relationship. You don't need the messiness of doing life with other sinners. Think about social media. Isn't social media kind of built on, on this, this kind of constant sharing your highlights? Nobody on, on social media is sharing the lowlights. Nobody's on their Instagram story saying, you know, hey, I want you to check out this rash I got this week. There's nobody doing that. If, you do, if they're doing that, you're, you don't follow them. You unfollow very quickly. There's some men in the church right now pulling up their Instagram account. I didn't know I wasn't supposed to post that. <laughs> Kansas, delete. Everything in our day and age makes it easy to push away from other people and to push away from meaningful relationships where we fully know others and are fully known by others, where we have to put any sort of relational stock in the progress of other people. And God is here this morning, stepping in front of our 21st century relational chaos to say there, there's a better way. When it comes to fellowship, when it comes to relationship, there is a better way, but the way involves risk. It involves the potential of being hurt by others. It involves the potential of being let down. This way of gospel fellowship, it involves the potential of being stabbed in the back. And as you think of it, like, doesn't that, doesn't that kind of just make sense? Like, if, if the, the relationships that, that Jesus is calling us into this morning are relationships where, at the very least, there are two sinners in the relationship, doesn't it make sense that out of that relationship there's going to come sin? Like, I love the title of Paul Tripp's marriage book. It's called, What Did You Expect? I love that. I, I want that to be like a banner in my house that I hang in the kitchen that I could pull a string and it comes down. What did you expect? Like, we are sinners trying to do life together. And so, I mean, I'm not good at math here, but you put two sinners together, and what are you going to get? And my guess is some, some relational sin. That if we're going to be involved in the lives of other people, there is going to be times where there is great potential for us to be hurt. And I just need to be honest with you. I, I look at the relationships in my own life, and I cannot find you one single meaningful relationship where there's not just sort of like this history of, of this need for a constant stream of forgiveness. Like it, it just becomes laughable at times. My greatest relationships, there's like a hall of fame of like, hey man, you remember that scar? You stabbed me in the back pretty, time, pretty hard that time. And oh, remember that time? I let you down pretty good that time. And that just becomes relationship, doesn't it? It's like this willingness to embrace pain in order that you might be a part of the other person's progress. And yet this is what makes it so valuable. That to be a part of the, the pain, that to experience the pain, is, is to experience the potential to be a part of their progress. And what Paul is showing us is that there's really no greater joy than to be used by God to progress the faith of other people. put yourself in the path of other people's lives. You put yourself intimately connected and invested in other people's lives. And what God begins to do is, is he even uses their sin to sanctify you. Like Christian, can I ask you for a moment? Do you believe, do you have the theology to say that the sin of the person that you are like friends with or married to or they're in your family, do you have the theology to say that, that the sin of that person is sovereignly being used by God? 
That's what God does. God uses the sin of other people, the way that their pain hurts you, he uses it as an agent of sanctification in your life. He sent it for your good. So that even the darkest clouds of relational pain that you can imagine, what happens is they come overhead and they break into rain and they bless and grow your life. And I have seen it time and time again, countless testimonies in this room of people who have been hurt because they've plugged into to a church filled with sinful people just like this church, newsflash, and they've been hurt. And God has worked in magnificent ways through the pain so that now they look back and they say, I would not be the person I am today without having to struggle through that. Now listen, I'm not saying that you endure any sort of pain and and that's okay. It's not okay. But I am saying that whenever we're in relationship with other believers invested in their lives, there is the potential for pain. Notice that Paul had invested himself so deeply in the progress of others, even though he says in verse 20 that I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Look at this in verse 21. It's so sad. For for they all seek their own interests. No one was with Paul. There's no one. As Paul's in Rome, in, in jail, house arrest, there is no one who's standing with him. They've all departed. They've all sought their own interests. Now, this is so significant, because if you've ever read the the letter of of Romans, it was written about five years before Paul wrote the letter to Philippians. And in Romans 16, it's one of those chapters that comes up in your daily Bible reading. You guys ever have these where you read it, and you're like, okay, there's nothing here, so you just kind of skim it. It's all names. Paul's like, okay, greet this person. Oh, no, oh, yeah, greet this person. And he does that over 30 times. He's like so intimately aware of the people in Rome, and he's got this intimate knowledge of him. And here, five years later, he, after having listed over 30 people by name, he says there's no one who does not seek their own interests. Everyone seeks their interests. Paul knew what it was to be deserted by people. Paul knew what it was to be invested in people's lives and have them turn around and stab him in the back. In fact, in in 2 Timothy, you know what Paul says? He says, all of Asia has deserted me. Have you ever thought about those words? Like, do you believe them by faith? Paul's saying, it's not hyperbolic. He says, all of Asia has deserted me. Listen, you've had people turn on you before. I don't think you've ever had a whole continent turn on you before. Paul had experienced pain. But he refused to throw the baby out with the bathwater on the church. He, he was like, you know those annoying little yappy dogs? You just cannot get them to stop. Just, you, know, you can push them over, they'll get right back up, they get right back at you. They're always chomping at the bit to get at it. And this is like Paul. When it comes to the church, he's like, I'm going to progress these people. I'm going to pour myself into these people. It does not matter what pain I feel like. This is the same guy who was like stoned. He got up and walked right back into the city. Where does this come from? Where does this power come from? Paul tells us it comes from a hope that is in the Lord. It is something that is directly given to us by the Lord Jesus. And I believe this is so practically instructive for you and I. You see, the power to keep on loving in spite of the reality that we will get hurt can only come from this deep heart acknowledgement that Jesus keeps loving me. I love that whole old hymn. You know it so well. Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. That is you and me. And yet Jesus is so committed to us. He leaves the 99 to go and find the one lost sheep. And he does that for you and I. As we consider Jesus we ask this question, who has who's embraced more relational pain for gospel progress than Jesus himself? I mean, when Jesus died on the cross, who in that moment was for him? Name me a single soul that on that day that Jesus was dying on the cross, name me a single soul who said, I'm for that guy, who did not take their metaphorical knife and stab it in her back. The crowds yelled, crucify him. There wasn't one voice that spoke against that. And there Jesus is hanging on the cross. And it's really significant what he did not say. Jesus never hung on that cross 
and said, man, I'm really going to need a break from the church after this. Jesus did not hang on that cross and say, man, I'm feeling a little burnt out right now, God. I cannot give anymore. Instead, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross knowing that the pain he was experiencing it was sovereignly being used by God for the progress of others. You will never begin to taste that pain because even in that moment, not only had men departed from Jesus, not only were all the evil spiritual forces of the world against him, even in that moment, God departed him so that Jesus would cry out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He faced the wrath of God. He was all alone. And why did he do it? For you. For you, so that you could be saved, so that you could realize the gospel of the good news that there is now salvation through Jesus Christ. And now the question is, what are you going to do in light of that? We embrace potential pain for the possibility of gospel progress. Second thing that Paul is pointing our attention to here is is this, that I know I'm walking worthily if I'll forsake personal projects for God's priorities. My walk's worthy when I'll forsake personal projects for God's priorities. Notice what Paul says, and, and I, I do not want you to be cold to this, okay? So we just got to take a moment, take a breath, understand that what you hold in your hands right now is God's word. And whenever we read God's word, we need to, with all the power of our imagination, insert ourselves into the text and do not be cold to how sad this next verse is. In verse 20, Paul says this, For I have no one like Timothy. There is no one who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Loved one, this is, this is an incredibly sad verse. Like, who apart from Jesus Christ has given more to the church than Paul? I don't think there's anybody. And yet Paul here, almost apart from Timothy and Epaphroditus, Paul stands in Rome alone. Everyone has forsaken him so that they can pursue their own interests. And church, I just want you to understand that this right here is why we are in Philippians. Because I am praying that if Paul were to come in here today, that would not be the case. That he would find in this room that there are many who have given up their own personal interests. Their own personal progress, projects. For the sake of God's priority in their life. For the sake of the interests of Jesus Christ. In order that they might be servants, not of themselves, not of their own kingdom, but of Jesus Christ and of his kingdom. And in many ways, we we look at our church and God, I, I just need you to know, God is answering this prayer in so many ways. And in a few moments, after the sermon... I should not say in a few moments because now some of you guys have an expectation tied to that. Like, oh, that's, that means five minutes. And so let me just tell you, that's a preacher's few moments. In a few moments, uh, about 18 people are going to stand up here on the stage. And as a declaration of their commitment to this church, and therefore their commitment to Christ, they are going to make this declaration that, that they are committed to this local body. That they are Timothy's here. That they are pouring themselves out for the sake of the progress of the other believers in this church, in this local body that God is doing a work in. They're saying, it's my life goal. Like The the church is Christ's institution. He has created it to reach the world. And these 18 people are going to stand up here in a moment. And and in the face of Philippians 2, verse 20 and 21, they are going to say, I'm not seeking my own interests. I am seeking the interests of the progress of God's children who are here in this building. That is an amazingly beautiful thing. But I'm also aware that Paul was surrounded by many in Rome. And within five years, there was no one. That means that it's radically difficult for you and I to stay committed to Christ's church 
And it is very easy to push away from others at any given time. The commitment that we make to other people, to Christ's church, is a commitment that we must keep ourselves in. And so, loved one, I want you to understand that whether you're plugging in right now or you're not, I want you to understand the, the need to put your stick in the ground and say, I'm going to do this. I'm going to invest my life in the progress of other people. I'm going to give up my own interests for Jesus' interests. Because that is not our neutral state. When you put the gear shift of your soul into neutral state, you never think about anybody else. You only think about yourself. This requires pushing forward with great effort. In fact, the Gospel of John says that you have many enemies. The, your sin, the world, the devil, all of these things oppose you. Pressing into the church is such a good thing. And as soon as you, you, even in this moment, if the Holy Spirit is moving in you and saying, I got to press in, you know what's going to happen? Satan is going to come, and, and he's going to come with flaming arrows to destroy your soul. I was so encouraged this week as I, as I sat down with a man, and he's just on the brink of, of, of I truly believe, and I told him this, I truly believe if you make the decisions that you are thinking about making, God is going to use you mightily, and you're going to look back, and there's going to be no regret. You're going to be so, so filled with the joy of the Holy Spirit. And he looked at me, and he started to list off all these ways that he felt he was being opposed in the decision. And I looked at him and I said, you see what's happening here? Like, Satan knows what good this will be for your soul. And he is opposing it at all costs. He is against your progress. So, of course, it's going to be hard. But, man, when you push through, the Holy Spirit fills you with this power that cannot come of yourself. And this blessing flows into your life that Satan knows will come if you make the decisions to press into all that Jesus is calling you to do. What makes this so difficult? I want you to notice that the people who abandoned Paul here in verse 21, he says, for they all seek their own interests. It's interesting that it's, it's not really like a super evil thing that these people have done to abandon Paul. It's not like Paul says, you know, all the people that were with me, they're murderers now. That's not the case. Instead, what's happened is that they've, they've kind of just been consumed with things that are good but are not this, the main thing. Their life has been consumed with their own interests. And look, the danger for you and I is that instead of seeking the interests of Jesus Christ, we will seek our own interests. And so you ask, well, what are the interests of Jesus Christ? And, and Paul's actually already laid that out. This is why Timothy's just an example, because he's already told us to do this in verse 4. Look, flip back with me to chapter 2, verse 4. Look at what Paul says there. He says, let each of you... Look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And in verse 5, he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Stay here for a moment. What Paul is telling us here is that the interest of Christ Jesus in your life, this is the word of God, this is not me speaking as a pastor who's trying to rile up the church, this is Jesus Christ, his word for you. His interest is that you would not be concerned with your own interests, but that you would be totally concerned with the interests of other people. In fact, in the original language in, in verse 4, the, the, it kind of would be a wooden translation, but the, the word interest isn't actually there. So, so the, one of the ways you could translate this is, is let each of you look not only to his own, but also to others. And it's sort of like Paul has left like a Holy Spirit-inspired fill-in-the-blank there. I think interest is a great word because it's, it's so broad. It kind of shows you that the measure of how you are to love other people is the measure to which you want to be loved. Is this not what Jesus taught us, to love others as we love ourselves? This is a measure thing. I don't need to tell you how much you love yourself. I don't need to tell you what, what interests you. You already know that. And the measure to which you are to, Jesus is calling you his interest is in your life is for you to have this interest is really the measure of your own interests. Think with me for a moment. Have you ever thought about how good human beings are at knowing what is in their best interest? Like, that's got to be, like, our number one thing as human beings, doesn't it? Like, we, just, we don't have to take a lot of time to calculate often what is in our best interest. 
In fact, kids from a very young age know how to manipulate the system in order to get what they want. They know if I, if I just cry like this, I can get this. They know how to, you know, lay on the butter thick. If I just ask like this, a hundred pleases, oh gracious father, may I please have this. They know what they can get. And the problem is that you and I don't grow out of that. We just get more mature with the things that interest us, don't we? Our interests become comfort. Our interests become financial security, a life of ease and rest. Our interests become leisure and hobby or self-development and and goals or career, all these things that become our interests, and and it really never changes. We, We know how to live life in a way to secure what we are interested in. God is coming into our path to say, until our life is lived solely in the pursuit of his interests, We will never experience this kind of relationship. That when our life isn't lived in the pursuit of our own interests, we are walking on the path of destruction. And until the gospel comes like a Mack truck and obliterates everything in your life, tears down the old man that is your sinful flesh, and, give, and the Holy Spirit comes in and gives you a new heart, you will always follow the course of your own interests until it leads to your destruction. And so the question that God comes to us with this morning is this. In what areas are you passionate for your own interests? Maybe right now in this moment, the Holy Spirit is like, because that's a fill in the blank, the Holy Spirit is just making you so profoundly aware in this moment of what you are pursuing that is your interest and not that of Jesus Christ's. And yet, let's think of a couple together. What are the things we might pursue out of this sort of self-interest? Not interested first in the priorities of the kingdom of Christ, but interested first in the priorities of our own kingdom. Well, let's think for a moment about the pursuit of the interest of comfort. Perhaps this is the most dangerous interest that we have in our North American culture, is this desire for lifelong comfort that rides us off into retirement. There are many ways this comfort can look. Maybe the comfort that you are interested in, and at times even more interested in than Christ's kingdom interest, is the comfort of this sort of political rest. This sort of political comfort. I mean, I don't, I don't know if there's anyone in here who over the last four years have looked at our country and said, man, things are going really well here. I'm really comfortable in this situation. Instead, what we look around is left and right, Christians being persecuted, and it seems more and more that we are going to be persecuted for being a Christian. And there is, there is a way to respond to that where we say, listen, this is getting really uncomfortable. Uncomfortable Living in Canada is no longer to my interest, and so I am just going to like run away at all costs. I'm going to go buy some land in the States. I'm going to build a Christian compound. You know, we got enough police officers here at the church to make a pretty awesome, if we wanted to do that, you know, it could be pretty awesome, pretty safe. We got a bunch of truckers here too. We got a bunch of bankers. We'll let them in. I don't know what they're going to do, but we'll let them in too. That could be our response. And I just want to warn you, as you think that, I'm not saying that it's never the right call to move away. I'm saying that that it is very easy to make a decision like that out of an interest in your own comfort, about uh, getting away from persecution. And it's very interesting that as you look at the scriptures, Christ never calls his believers away from a land just because they're experiencing some sort of persecution. In fact, he calls them into that in order that the church might grow and abound through that. What about the interest of recreational comfort? The interest of making sure that my life includes plenty of time for me to pursue the things that I find enjoyable. The leisure that I find entertaining. I can't help but to drive around and see so many of these companies that are just dedicated to your leisure. And wonder if there will be many who forsook a life of ministry. Of, of Christ working through them for his purposes so that they could do something like lower their golf handicap, so that they could spend more time at the lake, so that they could pour themselves into this sport. 
And you need to ask yourself, what, what is driving me to do these things? Is it an interest in my own kingdom, or is it an interest in the kingdom of Christ? Let me ask you this. What about the interest of your schedule? What about the interest of your schedule? If you were to look at the day planner of your life this past week, every hour, the way that you used your time this week, what would that say about whose kingdom you are interested in? How much time has been allotted in your day planner to me time? See, when Christ comes into your life, he takes your day planner and he turns all your me time into God time. So that even your career, even your career, like you don't pursue it so that you can, you know, build up some amazing financial portfolio for yourself or that you can get a promotion and get more money or so that you can impress your boss. It's interesting that, that scripture talks to this. It says that you are to work as though you are working for Christ, that even your job becomes this thing where you say, God, I'm doing this because you've given this to me as a priority. And you know what happens? As soon as you make that shift, you're unwilling to do what so many will do where they forsake other priorities God has given them for work. That's one of the greatest callings that Scripture lays upon the life of especially men in our church. Stop forsaking work for the other priorities God has given to you. See your work as a priority that God has given and balance it in light of all the other priorities that God gives to you. And so here we put off selfish interests, but the question is, what do we put on? Look what Paul says here in verse 22. He says, we put on those interests of Jesus Christ. Verse 21, and then verse 22, he says, but, but you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served me, in the gospel, there is this gospel service that is to consume all life. The most necessary priority of your life. It no longer becomes your own projects. It then becomes the advancement of the gospel. Listen, loved one, if you're in, in Christ, I want you to know that your commitment to Christ was you making the statement that, that my life is his. And may, may, you might think that you're in Christ, but if you haven't made that statement, I want you to know you, you are not a Christian. That is what a Christian is. A Christian is a disciple of Jesus who says his way is my way. Who says I no longer care about my own interests. My interests are for the Lord. My interest is to be Christ's servant. And so the question for you and I is how do we get this? How, how do we, like, like I, I don't know about you, but I just found over this week is the Holy Spirit pressed this text into my life. I was so aware of all these things that I was pursuing that were not Christ's interests. They were my own. And so how do we get torn away from this self-interest and captivated by the mission for Christ? And we come back to this time and time again. In verse 27, Paul says this of chapter 1, only let your life be worthy of what? The gospel. The gospel. It is only the good news of what Jesus Christ has done that you can free you to a life that we are talking about this morning. Only one thing will cause you to be willing to embrace this relational pain. Only one thing will cause you to be willing to put off yourself, and that is the work of Jesus Christ. See, see what you need, it's not an external work. Some in this moment, maybe in the conviction of the Holy Spirit, what you're asking for is like, give me five steps. I want five steps to put off selfish interest. I want five steps to put on the interests of Jesus Christ. And it cannot be an external work. The work that you need to do, if you'll put off your own interest, it needs to happen at a heart level. And the good news is this, that Jesus Christ has come to do that. That if you place your faith in him right now, he will put to death your selfish desires. And he will grow within you desires for the kingdom of Christ. This is what 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 15 says. Paul says this, For the love of Christ controls us, not the love of self, not the love of other men. The love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And listen to this, church. He died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Loved ones, here, here's the way. 
you look to the cross. 2,000 years ago, Jesus hung there. And when no one was for him, he was for you. And he died so that he could defeat death and thereby defeat the power that sin had on your life 2,000 years later so that you can be freed from the power and dominion of sin, freed to a life where you can live for the pleasure of God. And this can only come through the cross. Where Jesus died and three days later was resurrected. It is only by faith in what Jesus did for you as your Lord and Savior there that will open your eyes to the reality that he was raised with new power for you. A power to invest in the lives of others for their progress. A power to make his priority your priority. And so the answer is we seek him. We seek him. We spend our lives abiding in Christ, asking him to do this heart-level work that we cannot do on our own, asking him to tear us away from the selfish interests that are keeping us from investing in other people's lives and keeping us from investing in his kingdom so that we can be interested in him. And practically now, we do this by responding in song and giving him all the praise for what he has done on the cross. Would you pray with me? Father, we stand in awe of the work that you've done on the cross in dying and being raised. God, we give you all the praise. You're so good to us, Lord. And when we were living in sinful rebellion against you, when we were running a hell-bound race, you stepped into our world and you made a way for us. Lord, you made a way of life. You made a way of joy. You made a way for us to put to death the things that have only ever robbed from us, Lord. Our sin, our iniquities. Lord, you sent your Holy Spirit so that we might have desires that are otherworldly. They're supernatural and they're the desires we need, Lord, if we will be the church that you're calling us to be. And so, Lord, we give you all the praise. Lord, thank you for sending your son. Thank you that he died and he has risen with new power for us. And we praise your name for it, Lord. God, we pray this all in the name of your son.